Today is Monday, March 14th. The year is 2022. This is No Easy Answers and I am your host, Jules Taylor. Today, like all days, I have no easy answers for you. So welcome, everybody, to another episode of No Easy Answers, a Marxist podcast about politics, philosophy, and the human condition. Uh, I have with me today uh, Wahid Asal, I believe, if that's how I'm pronouncing it, all right? And um, yep. yeah, and so uh, I came across your article um, in Counterpunch, and I, um, I read that through, and I really wanted to get a chance to speak to someone and kind of have an organic conversation about what it's like oh. to sort of... Uh, learn about Alexander Dugan uh, and and kind of <clears throat> how unsettling that is, what the implications are, um, and how I think that it's not safe to ignore this stuff anymore. Um, so yeah, I mean, so I, so maybe I'll start with just a, a general question here, like uh, how did and when did you learn of Alexander Dugan? Uh, and what was that initial experience like? What did it trigger in you? And, and, and how do we find ourselves here today? Okay. I'll start with Bismillah. I learned about Alexander Dugan roughly around the zeros. And at the time, when I first learned about Dugan, I mean, he was basically kind of the chief linchpin of the Russian far right. But then as we started moving into the Arab Spring, um, and as RT, both the Russian uh, version of it, and also the RT America started gaining ground. The the um, talking points that was coming out of this network were extremely left wing. And once we got into the period of, of Occupy Wall Street, I mean, it was basically RT that put Occupy Wall Street on the global map. Otherwise, the the mainstream media of the, the corporate media of the West would have completely ignored that event. And this kind of pulled in a lot of people like myself, you know, with left wing leanings and Marxists. Mm. I mean, I'm an mm. eco Marxist. I'm not a what you might call a orthodox Marxist. Okay, um, gotcha. And, and I was hooked. And um, Dugan, during that time, himself was spouting an extremely left-wing language, um, which also then couched in the context of, you know, validating spirituality. And someone of my temperament, an Iranian, a Shia, a Sufi, um, you know, gravitates towards these sorts of talking points that, that combines... Uh, the left with, you know, the, a, a kind of alternative or, or uh, grassroots kind of spirituality, especially a earth-based spirituality, which I uh, follow. And so I started uh, getting close to these circles myself online, especially on Facebook. And when I was in Berlin, when I moved there in, in early 2012, uh, together with my late wife, um, we started seeking these people out because we found the left, the local left in, in, in Germany just completely fractured. Everybody was at each other's necks, lots of infighting between groups and that sort of thing. And, you know, we were witnessing what was unfolding as a result of the Arab Spring as being extremely alarming. Um, and these Russians, these Russian hacks and, and their minions, especially in Germany, were quite active, particularly by in the form of one particular individual by the name of Manuel Oxenreiter, who died um, uh, last year. And this individual was um, kind of Dugan's uh, de facto representative in Germany. And it later turns out that this guy is is just a neo-strasserist on steroids. But at the time, the kind of the way that they were presenting themselves and how Oxenreiter himself was presenting himself was, you know, very amenable to the kind of worldviews that I have and my late wife had 
uh, and you know our, our friends uh, in general, even including people like my uh, my dear friend Eric Dreitzer, um, who at the time was also you know appearing on RT and press TV, etc. Um, but you know the relationship went very sour quickly as the refugee issue started hitting Europe, and you had these influx of uh, Syrian refugees coming through Syria and Turkey into Europe, and all of a sudden, and this coincided with exactly the same thing time. Um, as the Ukrainian debacle you remain done unfolded and, um, you know, the, the seizure of Crimea and invasion of Crimea by Putin. And all of a sudden, overnight, um, these circles and particularly RT changed their tune 180 degrees from a, you know, a lefty a kind of platform to a just a rapidly rancid far right, you know, white nationalist talking point. And that's when our relationship with these people in Berlin uh, went very sour because my wife, um, God rest her soul, she came from a communist family. Her mother was a lifelong member of the KPD of Germany uh, while simultaneously being a practicing witch. Um, so, <laughs> you know, my background and her background was just completely at opposite. I mean, ideological backgrounds were completely opposite what these people were presenting themselves in. We broke with them publicly. And then from around, you know, early 2015 onwards, we were relentlessly being attacked by these people online, trolled, doxxed, you name it. Um, I mean, the, the police file that we have in Berlin, uh, based on the death threats and complaints that we were getting from these people, is massive. Um, suffice it to say that uh, in early 2016, I penned that article that you just mentioned, uh, Dugan's Occult Fascism and the Hijacking of uh, Left anti-imperialism, Muslim anti-Salafism, because we were finding that the entire uh, anti-imperialist uh, Syria issue was being completely hijacked by these people, uh, where they were essentially engaging in the same kind of tactics that we probably saw in the 20s in Germany, where elements of the left were being recruited into the far right. So they were browning the red, as it were, which is a historical, uh, you know, a very long-standing historical tactic of fascists and national socialism, white uh, nationalists of every stripe. Um, and friends and comrades of, uh, of ours, you know, who we never expected, you know, would fall for this uh, uh, snake oil, fell for it. Um, and I kind of, you know, involved, you know, not of my own choosing, but I sort of emerged uh, as sort of a voice amongst uh, people from my part of the world, from, from the Middle East, etc., who were uh, both standing against empire as well as white nationalists. I kind of became their voice, but then the attacks... Uh, would escalate, and all of these attacks eventually led uh, to the very mysterious passing of my wife uh, on March 11th, 12th of 2019 in Berlin, exactly three years from today, um, a case that is still being investigated by German federal police. Um, it appears that the trail has gone cold, but there's no doubt, at least in my mind, that, that my wife and possibly myself were being targeted in that capacity. Uh, by these by these various groups, we were also active on our street. We became basically the de facto antifa on our on our street at the time, uh, pushing against uh, the rising tide of the AFD, the Alternative for Deutschland. This is the white nationalist far right party that won 70, uh, 90 seats in the German Bundestag as of the election of two thousand and seventeen. Um, so we were quite active uh, during that period, and all of this led to the tragic passing of my wife, which you know, who's you know, what actually happened still remains to be, you know, uncovered by the police. Whether we will ever get to the truth or not, I don't know. Um, but what should alarm a lot of people is that um, the reason why the, the German feds took the case 
is it appears that they were there were insiders working in the office of the district attorney of Berlin itself, the Staatsanwaltschaft, that uh, basically stymied and did some very bizarre things during the you know the handling of this case, beginning with the autopsy, actually beginning with with when my uh, wife was taken to the ER uh, of uh, the Charité Hospital in Berlin, and um, I made this complaint to them as a result of this, and um, then they advised that I should leave Germany because I was being targeted. And given the history in Germany with the NSU murders, National Socialist Underground, uh, who were targeting you know all kinds of people, and you know there was a case still pending in in Munich at the time, they advised that I leave with my young daughter and, and come to Australia where my mom is, uh, resides. And so we did that. Um, and here we are. Um, but I'm looking at, back at this period, at least the last decade, and um, most of the predictions that I had made in that article briefly, uh, unfortunately, have come true, even exceeding my worst ex expectation. Um, I have a little bit more of a nuanced view of all of this now, uh, not, in, you know, a nuanced point in, in, in terms of trying to validate or, or vindicate the Duganists. Um, but where the nuance comes is that I believe that, you know, this is not merely a situation where you have a figure such as Dugin or, and these various forces of his, this Eurasianist forces and white nationalists being completely puppeteered by Russia. There are uh, a myriad of, of actors within the West itself and, you know, people with, with lots of money behind them. Steve Bannon comes to mind, um, but also the Mercer family, uh, who effectively have been pulling Steve Bannon's uh, strings throughout. Um, and these people, um, in essence, um, have gravitated towards Dugan and have formed a sort of a, whether a de facto or official alliance with Dugan and, or his entire ideology, wanting essentially to turn back the clock, uh, you know, to about 50 years ago. You know, so, um, you know, what Dugan represents himself as, as sort of the, the Rasputin of, of, of Putin, as it were, um, and what Putin himself is now doing, uh, whether through, you know, the, the war in Ukraine or generally in the last 10 years leading up to it, um, has been to basically galvanize uh, segments of the right uh, in, in the West as a whole uh, towards the Russian orbit. And this is a situation that is quite dangerous. And I don't believe uh, that the liberals, uh, whether in America or on the continent, are really prepared or equipped or really understand what is going on. Because there is a Trojan horse, a very powerful Trojan horse within these societies who are operating within the institutions uh, of all liberal democracies, whether in the United States or, or um, in Europe itself. We saw that with, with the, the presidency of Donald Trump. Um, but this this story continues, and these people are still there. It's not just Donald Trump. Wow. Um, I just want to say that I'm so sorry that this has happened to you and your wife and Three years from the day, I, I didn't expect us to be having this uh, this conference on three years from the day, but I hope that through this podcast episode and you telling your story and us uh, examining this and probing into it and, uh, and talking through it, I hope that listeners, I hope that this can travel out to be able to um, make more people aware of of your late wife and you. the events and things that have gone through stuff. So that's part of, you, that's part of the overall mission uh, of doing this. Um, so, you know, you said quite a bit there. Um, I'm, and I want to get to talking about the Mercer family and Dugan linking that you just spoke of. And I do want to get to 
um, the Syria browning the red thing that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do want to talk about who uh, Oxenrider is, the name that you yeah. mentioned. I know and, right. And I do want to speak about the public break that you had with these folks as well. Um, but I think the first thing that comes up for me in just hearing all this from you was that you are a person that has a spiritual side to you. Yes. Um, and um, I, maybe maybe it is the fact that I am... Um, I, I think what I'm putting together out of this is, is that you and your wife were looking for a community that was a leftist community that was spiritual and, and, and had maybe an ecological sort of side to it as well. But oh, I think yeah. that, but you were looking for that within an incredibly hostile environment um, towards uh, Muslims or people from the Middle East at that point. Yep. And so, so in searching for this sort of blend of, spiritual and naturalist outlooks uh, and, and egalitarian politics. Um, the stuff that was coming out of Alexander Dugan and some of the people that follow his stuff was appealing to you at that time. And I wonder if you might yeah. speak to that a bit. Yes, because um, they were also very careful in camouflaging their real um, beliefs and the things that they'd written and said, I didn't actually get to read his fourth political theory until probably around the end of 2014, because it was just not available, you know, um, uh, in a a decent English translation. There was several translations of it floating around. Uh, When I finally got this and I sat down and carefully read it cover to cover, I was just absolutely blown away at how incredibly dangerous and and how many fallacies exist in this book and how it is appealing to a, uh, a paradigm that I don't think any person of color in their right mind can possibly subscribe to. Um, because it is, in so many words, I mean, he, he goes through great lengths to uh, dissimulate a lot of things. But when you look at his sources, I mean, the entirety of the sources that Alexander Dugan uh, marshals in the fourth political theory are far-right and new-right uh, sources, from Alain de Benoit, who is practically his guru, and, and Novel Dorat, um, and, you know, various figures from the third position, and these are all, you know, neo-Nazis, um, and to try to build a political theory on the back of some s- stuff like this leads to only one place. Now, Dugan is very careful, and, he, and you probably saw that in that last video of his that I sent you the other day. He's very careful to kind of dismiss himself as being a racist. But um, this is all quite, uh, this is all dissimulation. Because where Dugan's political theory leads, the fourth political le- theory leads, is to this idea of multi. Uh, polarism, which is ethno-pluralism. And what that means is a very, uh, you know, a somewhat sophisticated way of saying, you know, white people in white countries and dark people and black people in their own countries, uh, where, you know, strict borders are enforced, etc. Now, while these people rail against, um, you know, the, the neoliberal globalist order, as I do as well, you know, if you are Marxist of any description, you are an internationalist. So, you know, the very concept of borders and people, you know, staying in their own countries is anathema, not to mention that the science, uh, you know, is pretty uh, hard and, and, you know, unequivocal in the fact that the very concept of race is a fallacy. Um, but these people, in, through various, uh, you know, tricks, intellectual tricks and whatnot, are basically pushing 
a identical agenda to the kind of nonsense that we saw in the 1930s with in, in Germany. Um, so, you know, whereas may, they may not come out overtly like the Al Alfred Rosenbergs and, and the uh, Nazi theorists of that period, uh, the implications of what they are saying effectively amounts to the same thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm happy to, I'm not happy or delighted to hear you describe that, but I, it gives me some uh, form of uh, uh, comfort to know that your analysis on that is, is very in alignment with mine. Uh, in terms of the multi multipolarity, um, you know, I thought the other day that I, I, I don't think people understand how much work the word multipolarity is doing to posit Russia as a powerful country. Yeah. Like uh, the entire argument and discourse as a whole, as it pertains to multipolarity, um, is something that is, I've, I've felt is, is, could be wholly a Russian propaganda theme or a Russian stimulated discourse of some sense. Um, but yeah, I mean, you're exactly right in that the sort of pluralism that's preached by uh, Alexander Dugin and the way that he is very careful to, to discard, uh, you know, accusations of racism. Um, it, it, the, the entire concept of his, of plurality to him is a very, like almost just a beautified way of like, what better way to, 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 I don't know, to beautify the particular, uh, uh, to dismiss universality than to beautify the particular or to uh, have a very dressed up way of saying blood and soil. Yes. Um, Boom. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but there is this like coded language part yes. of it as well that, um, and I think that there are various, um, like people arrive at leftist positions uh, through various avenues of political awakening. And, uh, you know, like, and I think that like you can get there via anti-capitalism, but that particular road um, is, is you're beset on both sides of you by, people who want to pull you towards egalitarian politics and other people that want to pull you towards fascism, you know? So, um, so it's interesting that you say that like this came out of the Occupy Wall Street uh, movement, because I think that was the first time I had ever seen in my lifetime, like a, a like a public display of like a consensus that we are dissatisfied with capitalism or that we are wanting to go after a, um, I mean, it was ripe for like a populist leader at that point, you know, yeah. like it, it could have been uh, taken over. Um, so I wonder, um, now that we've gone through all that and, and, and you went to Berlin and, and that's where you met this fellow uh, Oxenrider. Can you Emmanuel tell Oxenrider, me about him? Yeah. Emmanuel Oxenrider. Okay. Max, Emmanuel Oxenrider is a bit of an enigmatic character. He was the editor in chief of a magazine that, that basically is catering towards the military crowd known as Zuerst in, in German. Uh, I think it means awakening or something like that in German. Um, and um, we invited him and his, his uh, Armenian-Syrian girlfriend to our house a few times in 2014. And the one thing that my wife asked him after she kind of, you know, did a little bit of background search is, you know, what is all of this about Zuerst? And her, his confession to her was that, you know, we're basically, you know, having to... Um, pull certain left-wing people right and right-wing people left, you know, for the greater cause of eventually toppling the neoliberal uh, capitalist world order. You know, and he was very careful to couch his explanation in, in very left-wing terms and in, in, in the way that she could understand it. But, you know, all her flags went up because my wife was German and uh, 
you know, in Germany, there is a, a, a thing called brown esoteric or brown mm. esotericism um, or even, you know, the, the browning of the red, you know, that was very prevalent in Germany during the, the Second World, uh, the, before the Second World War, and especially in places like Munich, even into, the, you would say, the 1970s and 1980s where her mom was, was quite active. So, you know, left-wing Germans, authentic Marxist Germans, have always had their flags up about these sorts of developments. Because this is the sort of development that led directly to the rise of Adolf Hitler in 1933. Um, and all her flags went up. So, you know, I began to read more and investigate these people more. Uh, but they themselves let the gauntlet down um, with, you know, first, you know, supporting this, you know, very racist, racist rhetoric about the influx of refugees coming out of uh, Syria. Um, mm. And on and on and on, these examples went. Well, and also, you know, basically supporting the rise of Pegida. This was the anti, uh, you know, refugee, anti-immigrant, uh, white nationalist movement that that uh, rose in Dresden in 2014, and just basically gripped the German imagination, especially in the East. Um, and at the time, in 2014, all of a sudden, we saw these the Duganists all jump on the on the Pegida bandwagon. And there's all these Muslims, Shia Muslims. Otherwise, many of them supporters of the Hezbollah in Lebanon, um, who, you know, they're all caught in the middle. It's like, well, how as a Muslim do you justify what these Russian fascists and their minions in the United States are saying? And so these people were basically then now pushing the line that these refugees were all terrorists. So basically mm. pushing the line of RT uh, and the most, you know, rancid far right, you know, neo-Nazi rhetoric that was coming out of other portals throughout the continent. Um, and this was extremely disheartening. So, and then we also saw Assad and, and the Assad regime itself adopt this rhetoric, especially when when uh, Putin and the Russians came in to help them as of 2015. And for the life of me, it's like, well, this this you know, even as a strategy, as a temporary political strategy, uh, this is bound to um, to fail and create unnecessary divisions and rift even within you know emigre Muslim communities. Uh, on the one hand, we're being, you know, pushed by these, you know, radicalized Sunni jihadists. Uh, on the other hand, then we have these Russians, you know, basically trying to push a racist narrative on us at the same time, you know. Uh, yeah. And this is this is where we found ourselves in 2015, uh, particularly when, you know, Germany, Merkel finally opened the doors of Germany and let, uh, I think, about a less than a million uh, of these refugees to come into Germany, which an effort we actually were involved in helping a lot of these people to relocate and settle themselves. Etc. Um, and we were, you know, basically put a target on our back as a result of all this, whether with the Russian forces themselves online and elsewhere, or with the German right with the AFD and their minions who are, who are effectively uh, puppets of Moscow, as far as I'm concerned. Wow. So I think, I mean, that's, that's really, uh, I mean, that's, I'm, I'm sorry you've gone through so much with like, you know, with the radical Islam kind of pushing you on one side and then, uh, and then you have this, these erroneous Russian racists trying to push you into this uh, very flowery version of blood and soil. Um, and that's, I mean, I, I don't know. I just, I, I just, I never even thought to consider any of the sort of the social climate around Occupy Wall Street as it would affect someone of like, uh, you know, someone who is, um, spiritually inclined who is uh uh ethnically from the from the middle east that's experiencing this sort of prejudice that's happening in those moments that's um that's really terrible um you eventually had a public break with these folks i mean it's yeah you know i 
I'm very interested in like the uh, in in like the way that you had mentioned that there is like uh, already a, a a red flag that goes up for people who are familiar with this sort of thing, you know, and and then you yourself having to go through this process of studying up in order to to I don't know get to a place where you can have a public break with yeah. that, right? Yeah. Um, so so I would you tell us about like I don't know like what what you studied in order to get to the point where you could come to a public break, and then what was that public break like? Well, reading the fourth political theory itself, cover to cover, very carefully, um, that was the first place, and that that occurred in 2014. But like I mentioned, you know, the the clincher was with these people coming out in support of Pegida, right? Um, right. Because this was just not on. I mean, here we were, you know, basically um, part of several different anti-racism groups in Berlin, you know. Uh, trying to push back against the mainstream German media, who itself was, you know, adopting slight xenophobic and and, and jingoistic uh, uh, talking points. And then for these people who we thought, you know, were basically, uh, you know, trying to push back against these sorts of of, of things that are part of the entire package of, of, of the, the neoliberal world order, as I call it, um, jumping on its bandwagon itself. Um, that was it. You know, that was just like, you know, that is absolutely not on, you know, friendship or no friendship, whatever. Um, this is fascism, pure and simple. Yeah. But yeah. by reading his fourth political theory and just realizing that this guy is just dissimulating, but even in his dissimulated, it is so transparent, the program that he's that he's putting forward, um, that you cannot deny it that, that what these people are doing is exactly the same strategies that the Nazis themselves adopted in the 20s and early 30s with, with, the, with, with the left in Germany. Um, so as a result of this in 2016, you know, um, several people asked me to put together something, you know, for counterpoints, you know, just summarizing all of these issues. And the result is the article that you read. So the public break was the article itself. Well, it, it was already, it had already occurred, but this was the seal. Yeah. This was oh, the okay. 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 Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. All right. Um, so when you talk about the, um, the serious situation and and how uh, Dugan's people sort of, I guess, muddied the water around that or overtook this thing. And you call it browning the red. Yeah. Um, was that by any chance the New Horizon convention that you're speaking to? That's a part of it. That's the conference that the Iranians hold once a year. Um, and they invite all of these various uh, figures from Europe and elsewhere who are all pretty much, you know, white nationalists and far rightists. Um, but no, this was this was more concerted effort. This was in on, on the social media level where oh, wow. okay. as the as the war began to expand in 2011, um, all of the circles online, whether on Facebook, Twitter, etc., et just got inundated with people with very weird agendas. You know, on the one hand, they would come in and spell a very you know clear anti-imperialist position. Uh, but on the other hand, then, you know platforms associated like for example the the syrian social national party which is uh, an ally of the baathists of, of syria who are effectively you know syrian national socialists uh these people would come in there's that one woman who lives here in australia as well mimi allaham uh the syria girl the famous syria girl she, was, she became kind of the face of all of that her whole family are involved according to her uh with the syrian national uh party the snp um and then we start to see, you know, very close confluence and alliances between these people and, you know, groups, uh, you know, based out of Belgium and except these are like, you know, identitarian white nationalists and what, whatnot, 
were also spouting the anti-imperialist line, but then si simultaneously spouting anti-immigration lines, very racialized, you know, on every level, brushing everybody uh, with the same stroke, wanting, you know, claiming to want to purify Europe of, of immigration and immigrants and, and all these brown people have come and quote-unquote infested the continent, etc., and, you know, these sorts of contradictions, you know, to someone, you know, can actually reason their way through things are obvious. But in a situation where you have a war as devastating as the one in Syria was, um, and as, you know, convoluted as the one in Syria became, um, it is easy for even the natives and the locals to be pulled into this stuff. And this is what happened. Um, now, the Syrian regime, the Ba'athist Syrian regime of Basra al-Assad is a, is a you know, is an uber-Arab nationalist regime whose rhetoric, you know, Ba'athist rhetoric in general, uh, is very, uh, you know, problematic, even though they're Arabs. Uh, but, you know, this SNP, which is an ally of theirs, is overtly a National Socialist Party. It's, a, it's an Arab National Socialist group. Wow. Um, and these, and they've been around since the 1930s and 40s. Um, so this, this stuff was very, um, you know, very troubling. And then you see the source, same sorts of development happening um, amongst supporters of, of Hezbollah and the resistance accents in Lebanon, and not so much from, from the mouth of its leadership, but more from its rank and file and prominent leadership. So, for example, one of the very dominant uh, and prominent Duganists uh, in, in Lebanon is this woman, Marwa Osman, who I've, I've locked horns with numerous times on and offline. Um, and she comes from a very prominent Hezbollah family. Uh, she's been, uh, you know, uh, showcased at this very conference in Iran that you mentioned. She's been, uh, she's come in and out of the offices of, of Hassan Nasrallah and, and, and taken to Iran to meet with the supreme leader over there, uh, et cetera. Um, and she rubs shoulders with some of these very rancid Nazis, you know, whether European versions of them or Russians. And um, every time I have tried to point this out to people that, you know, this just doesn't make any sense. You know, for for Muslims and especially Muslims who are uh, coming from that stream uh, of, of of resistance ideology in Lebanon, it does not make any sense for these people to be allying with these Russians. You know, who are just wedge pushing amongst groups. Now, this is a divide. This is a very classic nineteenth century divide and conquer tactic that they're employing against these groups uh, who are trying to advocate for peace for the end of war. Uh, you know, for the retreat of these, you know, proxy forces that are operating in, in, in Syria and throughout the Middle East, whether ISIS or otherwise. Um, and uh, but once all of this was basically hijacked on the social media level and also on the media level to some degree via uh, the Russian alt media ecology that is all over YouTube and all over the Internet, um, you know, things got it quite heated and more and more heated until we lead up to the election of Donald Trump. Um, you know, man, this last like six years or so um you know i think uh as a person on the left i know that while there was uh speculation about uh russian interference in the election it was something that you ran the risk of being called like a russophobe or being told that you're a liberal or something because uh it's been this way since the cold war and it's like you know you're just reading too much into it and uh and this is the Democrats are doing this so they can win. Um, but, you know, I think uh, I, I would hope that, you know, and I, and I know for me personally that when Russia invaded Ukraine recently, it, it changed 
how I, and, and it changed how I felt about like, one, is Duden relevant and is he safe to ignore? Um, but two, like it made me take this sort of 10,000 foot view above it all and, um, and think that, you know, maybe, maybe we need to go back and reopen the question, those Marxists that dismiss that stuff, you know, mm. of like, this was probably happening. And, um, and two, like, the United States is not the only country capable of propaganda. Yeah, sure. Um, and it seems like kind of a, I don't know, like a, like a Western chauvinist or like a sort of Western privilege to, to even not consider that that there is another country capable of propaganda. Well, there, um, all country, all power is is capable of propaganda. You know, those who have power are afraid to lose it, and they will use any means to keep themselves there. And that's true of Russia, as as it is true of the United States and of Europe, and and, and you know any other power for that matter. And this is the problem with the nature of power and authoritarianism in in, in the modern age. Um, and it won't change whether Putin stays or goes, or they lose or win. You know, whatever. Um, I, I am no friend to NATO. I am no friend to the Atlantic West. I think they are a big part of the problem. I look at NATO as a criminal organization and it's proven itself that time and again. Um, Marxists need to be a little bit more wise and jumping uh, either on the bandwagon of Russiagate or otherwise kind of misses the forest for the trees. Um, you know, the Russians had help in getting their man into the White House on the ground through the Republican Party. I mean, you need to look at, at, at the massive amount of um, purges in state legislatures controlled by the Republican Party that was happening in the lead up to that election. Um, and also because the liberals and under the Obama administration essentially failed in many of their promises, economic promises primarily. And America right, right. Um, wasn't better off eight years um, from the election of Barack Obama uh, than it was when, when Mr. Trump got elected. But, you know, Trump is a stakeholder, oil salesman, so was Obama. So um, I find it problematic, at least in the West, that, that many on the left align themselves in these issues with the liberal center, because the liberal center is the ruling class, essentially. And, you know, if we truly believe in class war, then fundamentally the axiom is that the ruling classes of these societies themselves uh, are a problem. So... My, my point of view today is that we need to take a middle path and basically become a third, the, a, an authentic left needs to emerge on this planet that basically takes on both of these two, the, the Atlantic powers that be and these Eurasianists want to be fascists um, at the same time, because we cannot afford either of these two powers to continue in, in business as usual, because our planet ecologically is on the verge of a, of a general system failure. And this is the science is tied on this, you know, um, that if we're not careful, uh, we're looking at the barrel of a extinction event, you know, very shortly, yeah. within either in our lifetime or shortly thereafter. Um, and both of these powers are perpetrators, whether we're talking about the Atlantic West, the United States and its allies, NATO, et cetera, or, you know, uh, China, uh, Russia, and et cetera. And so we, in, a, in essence, we need to go back to the drawing board, back to the original sources, but also then look at these original sources through the lenses uh, of, of contemporary theorizing and also uh, events uh, to lead us to proper strategies of confronting both of these at the same time, rather than being pulled by one into the other. Because this has been precisely the problem and, and why uh, there has been such readiness among certain segments of the left in the West to get pulled into the Duganist camp or the fascist camp is because, you know, the, the disunity that, that exists amongst the left everywhere, you know, where you have one group of people, you know, basically drumming 
for one cause, another for another cause. Trade unionism is dead. You know, the issue of class struggle is no longer even spoken about in many uh, left-wing circles. Uh, proper analysis of, of, of economic trends are, are not looked upon. And even, you know, more importantly than that, on the level of language, I mean, if, if, if since Heidegger is so important to Mr. Dugan, and, you know, Heidegger says somewhere, you know, language is the, is the house of being, one of the things that, that a lot of people on the left have been doing over the last 10 years is like appropriating terminology that is coming from these fascists. One notable one is the, the term geopolitics. Geopolitics is a completely fascist concept. It, it arises from the writings of this British, uh, you know, imperial era scholar Herbert Mackinder, where he basically divides the world into the, the land powers and the sea powers. And Alexander Dugan basically revived this character, uh, Herbert McGinder, and he actually mentions that in that video I'd sent you. Um, right. And basically lays out a vision of the world where basically the struggle is basically between the ruling classes of these, you know, sea powers and earth-based powers, etc. And I look at that as just a complete load of nonsense, and but at the same time, extremely dangerous paradigm and lens to look at the world. But this is what is unfolding. You know, and this is the strategy that, that Dugan has developed, and particularly in that book of his, uh, The Foundations of Geopolitics, which unfortunately has not had an English translator yet, uh, where he lays out all of this stuff, and then he then proposes certain strategies about how certain things can be manipulated, uh, you know, how Russia can can uh, find effective opportunities to undermine its, its various enemies, including, I might add, China. Because in that book, uh, Dugan looks on China as, as, a, as an enemy. You know that that ultimately needs to be cut to size as well. So it's not as if that Russia right. and China are you know are allies in this uh, you know in this eonic struggle against the West. Um, ultimately, Dugan's uh, you know Dugan's view, and then possibly the, that of the Russian ruling establishment, is to eventually then confront China itself. Yeah, you know the uh, I've been watching a lot of John J. Mearsheimer lately about this stuff, and um, and and it strikes me. Um, that the concept of geopolitics to Mearsheimer is really kind of identical to Dugan mm -hmm. or, you know, like, like it's, it's that geopolitics is nothing more than like a world stage where all the nations sit and every, it's like a, a poker table where everybody is cheating that, that it is anarchic and there are no rules. And so the, uh, the actions and behaviors of nations, however sociopathic they may be, are ultimately sort of naturalized. Mm -hmm. uh, within this context. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know if that's just like uh, realpolitik or something, you know? That's, I don't know if that is just... That's realpolitik. That's that's the classic yeah. 13th century definition of realpolitik, yeah. Okay, yeah. Because, like, so I, so I think about that, and, um, and I don't know how to get beyond that, but it, it strikes me as when you're talking about this middle path, dude, like this... This sort of carving out of like, hey, we don't have to be uh, to, to be anti-Eurasianist is not pro-NATO, mm -hmm. and uh, and we can argue with both sides, and we can walk and chew gum. Yeah, um, you know, but it's kind of the, the ultimate threat of the Duganist ideology is this sort of it takes all the world and turns it into this sort of Manichaean, uh, you know, uh, like like us against them kind of thing. Yeah, it, it carves out. Um, it's like that Heidegger quote where it's like, you know, you have to create the enemy if the enemy doesn't exist yeah. in order to stand against the enemy. Yeah. Um, 
So, um, so all that being said, man, you know, like the, I've had conversations on this show before where I've thought like, you know, the worldview, uh, like that the left does not have a worldview right now. That's like the at least the American left the is, is like, is like in this, like our ultimate goals of any sort of like democratic socialism or exactly. I don't know. It's like, it's like free college and we spend this money on ourselves on healthcare and it's all this individualized shelf, uh, self, uh, I don't know, man. It's, it's like we have problems as a, as a whole collective unit, the left imagining yeah you know and and maybe we maybe there's an argument to be made that like our imagination threshold is set by the economic conditions on the ground or something but the i, I just mean to say that like the, the left needs a better worldview yes. and we've had conversations about that at all and i'm just like sitting here really refreshed by you saying that there needs to be like this middle ground between these eurasian wannabe nazis and nato on the other side yes um because because if we don't have a sort of nuanced perspective on that then we kind of turn the manichaeanism on on ourselves that turns yeah, into exactly. black and white it turns into a two-dimensional sort of a non-nuanced sort of position to take yeah i mean you know the catch call should be socialism or bust but what kind of socialism do we want? You know, um, sure. because, I mean, you know, over the last several you know decades, lots of information has been coming out from the notebooks of Marx that were never published. That uh, Marx himself held a very deep ecological side, um, and there have been several scholars who've been looking at this, and his notebooks have started to be translated. Um, and he has a concept of metabolism that kind of nuances everything that we understand by dialectical materialism itself. Um, so I would invite people to look at that, you know, look at, you know, Marx's notion of metabolism, um, because then we can then very much more clearly elaborate uh, what kind of a socialist society needs to emerge. What are we going to be fighting for? You know, what does ecological sustainability mean? Because the Soviet model of socialism that went so awry, um, you know, operated on the premise of productivism. So we can, you know, exploit nature at will until we deplete ourselves, you know, to oblivion and then maybe... If we have the science, we can, you know, we can replenish all of this, but that's not how it works. There is a metabolism between humanity and nature. Um, and that's something that Marxists need to, to seriously take aboard, especially by going and reading and contemplating some of these, these uh, late notebooks of Karl Marx himself. Um, and this segues for someone like me into that kind of earth-based, nature-based kind of spirituality that I think is also very important for people to have as a sort of guide. Uh, you know, to, if you look at if you look at uh, if something is made sacred, then it is worth, in a sense, fighting for. And that sacrality can occur with your, you know, is with yourself, with your surroundings, with your environment, your um, and you know, for future generations. How indigenous people, for example, um, or what you know, sociology or anthropology calls primitive peoples, which I kind of don't like as a term. Um, how they look at the world, how, for example, the shamanic worldviews of the Amazon or uh, even, you know, somewhere like Mexico. And you have the Zapatistas of Mexico who have actually appropriated this worldview. So their leftism is a leftism that is very autochthonous and is very indigenous in the way that it approaches. It's not, you know, it's not brown. It is not nationalist. It is something else completely. And so these sorts of pr perspectives, I think, are extremely helpful where in the West, for example, you have many people gravitating towards neo-paganism, right? Um, they can, they don't necessarily have to just, you know, be navel-gazing and do rituals at home and, you know, talk about the goddess and whatnot. They can take this into the streets and fight 
for Mother Earth, as it were, fight for their the children of Mother Earth, you know, their 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 fellow comrades, etc. So all of these things can be, you know, negotiated, you know, intellectually into a coherent political program that is Marxist, but is Marxist for the 21st century and is ecologically focused. So we can actually do that. It's very possible. And the theories are out there, the writings are out there, and I think the will is beginning to emerge for us to be able to pull something like that off as well. I, I could talk to you about this stuff for hours, man. Um, it, you know, and I love what you're saying here because I think that you're you're getting to something that I um, that I brought up to to Benjamin Teitelbaum. Uh, Benjamin Teitelbaum is the guy who wrote War for Eternity. We yes. had him on the show, and I, it's, it's through reading his work that I uh, first encountered Alexander Dugin, and here we are today. Um, but, it, you know, and recently, I in that episode that I just released about Alexander Dugan, he was talking, uh, in these clips that I caught up, uh, that I integrated into that show, uh, one of the clips, he's talking about what he calls the national idea. And um, and that, like, that hit me like a ton of bricks, because I, I was trying to piece all this stuff together, as you would imagine, coming into learning about Alexander Dugan and trying to couple that with your Marxism and your concepts of fascism and your ideology and the sort of confusing terrain that's always shifting underneath you. Um, all that stuff in particular, um, it, 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 was a, it was confusing enough to where I realized that part of the reason why maybe something like January 6th could have happened or 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 why there is this weird like rise of uh, of Christian nationalism or was because of a sort of secularism in society and like this gap where their spirituality used to occupy it yes um and and so in not having or you know maybe in having a civic religion is one of the ways a society copes with that maybe maybe society uh take uh Maybe you, you do stuff like you have, uh, I don't know, burial rites for flags instead of the sacred or something. Or you the sacred is kind of transferred into uh, mythological figures like a giant statue of Abraham Lincoln or something. Oh, but like it's, 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 um, it's sublimated into the state. So that becomes a, 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 a right, status right, religion. Right, right, yeah. right, right. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. You separate the church and the state yeah. and the state just becomes a church, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, but like but like that, that aspect um, of this like almost like a latent thirst for the spiritual that happened within our secular society felt like a key component to why yes. uh, a space for this sort of, this form of fascism mm -hmm. would emerge. Um, in the case of Dugan, a very sort of Evolian, spiritual, yeah. racist uh, 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 form of fascism. Yeah. Um, so, I, so I don't know, man. I mean, I just, I, I, I felt the space here in, that in this conversation to mention that because I, you know, I'm not a spiritual person, so I, 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 I look and wonder and look to other people to to provide a description of these things to me because mm. I, I, I don't know them myself, and I, um, I, I don't, you know, it, it's like, it, it, but but it, in examining philosophy and 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 trying to do a good job of that and looking at some theology and things like that, um, it, it's I think I think Dugan recognizes that too, man. Yes, he that, does. Like, there is this, but so did, so did Marx. Um, Marx recognized this as well. I mean, especially in the latter part of his Hegelian phase, um, you know, that, that quote of his that is always taken out of context, religion is the opium of the masses, is not right. actually a negative um, statement. Once you read the whole uh, section, and especially that entire quote in its entirety, he recognized this very much. Um, and the concept of alienation that Marx pres presents um, anticipates this precisely this development that we're seeing. 
bourgeois society and its modes of production, the way that the capitalist society structures itself, lends itself, especially with 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 the um, uh, with the working classes and peasantry, etc., to alienation. You know, meaning is is denuded of these societies. You are ma- merely made into a cog in a, in a wheel, uh, and your value only exists in cash. Um, so inevitably, that alienation occurs, and inevitably, these that kind of a secular society lends itself to precisely these sorts of internal contradictions that then uh, allow someone like an Alexander Dugan, or you know, if Dugan didn't exist, they'd have to invent him. Someone like him to come along, a, a Pied Piper kind of figure, to lead the you know certain masses down the proverbial cliff. And this is what has happened. And, you know, the blame for that lays completely at the feet of nature of the neoliberal uh, society that we've created, which is capitalism and capitalism that Marx saw on steroids. And, and it's adopted features that, that I don't think even, uh, you know, Marx or Engels could have even anticipated. One example of which, uh, which I've mentioned many times, is that under neoliberalism, we have witnessed uh, a kind of an inverse or reverse trend to what Marx predicted would happen under socialism, that is, under neoliberalism, the state has withered away, but it has withered away to what? It has withered away to the corporatocracy. So the state is now mm. essentially a prop, a, a a a you know a phantom to the powers of 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 corporation and the corporate corporate state. Um, and you know it, it kind of boggles my mind that there are not no not that many more Marxists out there who are not seeing this trend or not alarmed uh, uh, and coming to some kind of a formulation of, of, of strategy that is, you know, multifaceted and is able to, uh, you know, address a myriad of different issues to tackle this proverbial beast. Um, because if we don't, um, these fascists will indeed win. Um, and they are good at galvanizing the symbology of religion and spirituality to that end. Uh, and then, you know, basically corrupting and then pulling people into these authoritarian uh, modalities uh, of, of thinking and, and discourse and whatnot. I break down the issue rather than a, a, a as being a fight between secularism and religion. I look at the overall issue here as basic the conflict between authoritarianism and its opposite. That, you know, that if we can resolve this issue, if we can resolve uh, the proclivity of, of human organization and, and community from descending into authoritarian modes of governance, then the issue of, of, of religion and spirituality is completely tangential and is not necessarily tied to the historical experiences that we've had uh, in how you know religions and religious institutions have behaved. And so, and Marx himself also to some degree anticipates this and kind of alluded to this in several different places, and particularly in his Hegelian phase. Hmm. Well, you know, if we, uh, if alienation is like, you know, to if alienation has gotten to such uh, withering heights of like just uh, depravity that like uh, that it's created this sort of um, this gap that like you know something will fill it. You know, exactly. like it, and and it, yeah. and it's and it's like it could be an actor not of your choosing, sort of exactly. thing. Yeah. Um, and. Uh, so yeah, all that is all that is fascinating, man. Um, uh, and I'm and I'm glad that I was able. I mean, I've not had been able to have the, a conversation on this topic with many people, and so I, I part of me is really fulfilled You're right welcome. now for even being able to do that. <laughs> so um, yeah. So so I don't know, man. Like uh, at this point now, um, I mean, you had sent me a video. 
of Alexander Dugan recently. Um, I forget what date that was on. I think it was on like March yes. 6th or yeah. 7th. Um, but, you know, I wanted to say that like I, I've never seen Alex. I've watched a lot of videos of Alexander Dugan at this point, studying this guy, trying to figure him out. And I've never seen his body language seem so joyful yeah. or effusive or like he um, in that speech he's basically like um confirming a lot of our like i don't know like our like the implications to dugan seems like this is an epic sort of continental yeah. confrontation <laughs> that it's like the the forces of light which he seems to always you know they always seem to think they're the force of light right um versus a sort of satanic and powerful uh a satanic uh force in the west um, even though there are people who have described Alexander Dugan's practices as satanic. Uh, so He is a Satanist. I mean, yeah. at the end of the day, he's a left-hand path Satanist. He comes from um, that occultist milieu um, that has figures like uh, Alistair Crowley in there, although I'm a little bit ambivalent about Crowley myself. But um, one particular influence that I didn't know at the time when I wrote that article, but my friend uh, Branko Malic, uh, Croatian Catholic intellectual kind of, notified me to was that um, the influence of this um, this occult satanic left-hand path order known as the order of the nine angles is very prominent in the kind of things that Alexander Dugan is doing. Um, that the resonances between his kind of discourse and what they're kind of trying to implement is just too uncanny to dismiss out of hand. Now, until that time, until you know some of the stuff that, that Branko was putting online in 2016 and 2017, even uh, seasoned Dugan watchers like uh, Anton Shikostov uh, weren't aware of this angle themselves. Uh, so Branko basically shed the light on this and made that connection. And I have pretty much come to that conclusion myself that, you know, whereas, you know, yet Crowley, uh, maybe, maybe a clownish figure, uh, you know, kind of a guru of the LHP occult circles of the West, but, you know, really it is, it is Ona, the Order of the Nine Angles and the people who founded that uh that that is the real influence on that and you see when you go back to to, to dugan's activities in, in just on the lead up to the fall of the soviet union and you know decades subsequent to that um dugan speaks very um dugan speaks to this stuff you know he was also involved in many of these occultist circles himself uh and several of his comrades at the time uh in moscow and st petersburg and, and elsewhere so what appears to me and to, you know, other Dugan watchers is that, you know, this whole talk of Orthodox Christianity, Eastern Orthodox Christianity is really a smokescreen because a lot of Dugan's own points of departure would be considered by the Eastern Orthodox Church to be heresy in, in many respects. So he is presenting he's, or pushing a LHP uh, Satanist kind of agenda, political agenda. Um, while masquerading himself as an Eastern Orthodox Christian. I mean, I've pointed this out to several Russians uh, on, on and offline, and they've seen it, uh, and they find it very disturbing. Um, but, you know, the Russian state, um, and Putin particularly, seems to value this perspective. And so this adds another layer to this, which, which uh, should disconcert people. Right, right. And, and you know, I, I don't know enough about, like, mysticism or spirituality to... Uh, to find any sort of like, I mean, when someone says Aleister Crowley, I mean, I'm, I don't really know anything about the guy, you know. So the the accusations of of satanic practice around this is just stuff that I've seen 
uh, come from various people, but it's it's a bit hard to discern whether it's hyperbole, whether it's like, um, but it sounds like these are actual like, you know, when when you said it's chaos magic or yeah. something like that in your article, it's like, I, these are these are new concepts yeah. to me as like an atheist who doesn't you know have any. I, I've never had to research this stuff. You know, I mean, well, I would um, I would advise you to look at this stuff, and I would also I would probably start first by kind of. Um, getting you to read the works of my late friend, uh, Nicholas Goodrick Clark. He wrote, that was, oh, right. this was part of his research. He wrote several books, but two of which he wrote, one was um, called The Occult Roots of Nazism, uh, where he basically unpacks this whole uh, occult, Western occult subtext to the rise of, of National Socialism, particularly with the Theosophical Society uh, and uh, Madame Helena uh, Petrovna Blavatsky, uh, Blavatsky, yeah, and yeah. all of that because much of the National Socialist symbology comes out of the work of Blavatsky herself, uh, you know, Isis Unveiled and the Secret Doctrine, etc. And, and Goodrich wow. Clark, you know, really delineates all of that and gets really deep into the historical uh, groups and, and trends that were operating in, in Europe uh, in the latter part of the 19th century leading up to the First World War and then thereafter. So this stuff is important because they, these things have political uh, imp implications. I mean, I've said this to many of my friends on the left, um, you dismiss this stuff at your peril, right? Not so much in terms of the level of ideas, but on the level of, of action of what these sorts of ideas potentially can unleash in a given society with the people that they recruit in their orbit. Um, and just like the Theosophical Society spawned, essentially, whether accidentally or deliberately is an is a academic question at this point, just as it spawned National Socialism in Germany, one could argue that um, you know many of these ideas, especially the ones that, that Dugan has been spouting, uh, are responsible for the same sorts of trends uh, that we saw in the 20s and the 1930s. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think lefties need to be especially discerning and especially vigilant uh, and really understand these concepts. There's a lot of literature that has been coming out, uh, especially over the last couple of years um, because of the election of Donald Trump. But all of them you know, basically first start off with, with the scholarship of my friend, uh, Nicholas Goodlock, who really did a really fine historical job of, of laying all this stuff out. I that's amazing that you were his friend, yeah. um, because I in the research for all this stuff, I ended up picking up that book about the Nazi occultism, yeah. and obviously I haven't read all the way through it. But I also have his book on uh, Savitri Devi. Yes. Yeah. Um, so like, and his book on Savitri Devi, it's interesting to. To meet a person like you that would be uh familiar with yeah. that because I, there's mm -hmm. this um there is a sort of like uh anti-human nihilism yes. or misanthropy that came out of her that uh seems to have had current day effects still uh in ecological circles yes. um but but itself is not like you know i i read about her in my uh in trying to decipher julius evola yeah. Uh, and I was trying to figure out the Rene Guénon stuff and the Evola stuff and uh, Frithjof Swan yeah. and, and uh, Aman Kamiswarma. Kumar Swami, yeah. I pronounce his name correctly. Kumar Swami. Kumar Swami, yeah. yes. Yes, yes. Um, so all these figures uh, came into, came on my radar when I was reading this stuff. Um, but that's that's so interesting that you knew Nick. Yeah, he was I, corresponding to my, yeah, I, until I, he passed away a couple years ago. I, yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, I didn't even know that he had passed because I, well, I, I, I discovered that when I put his book down and was like, I have to try and email this guy to be on the show. And, um, and that's when I had discovered that he had passed. So it's interesting that you bring him up and that you were his friend, that you corresponded yeah. with him. I mean, that's, yeah. Um, so 
Speaking of Savitri Devi, I mean, uh, listeners might remember, I did speak a little bit about her in like episode 29, um, but she is responsible for something known as esoteric Hitlerism. Yes, yes. And, uh, and, and, and the way that I understand it, I mean, I don't know, if I'm not going to get into a whole explanation on this, but I, I, I question, um, is, is Dugan, do you think, or do you have any knowledge of Dugan uh, taking inspiration from Savitri? He Dugan? does cite him in a couple of Russian articles, so he knows about her work and he knows her point of departure. Uh, Devi's main uh, acolyte with a, was a South American gentleman by the name of Miguel I think it's Serrano. I'm not sure. Miguel yeah, Serrano. Miguel Serrano, Miguel Serrano, yeah. 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 Um, so he kind of spread this esoteric Hitlerism in Spanish throughout South America. And uh, that became kind of the discourse of choice amongst a lot of these right-wing, uh, you know, uh, fascist uh, forces and circles in South America, all, all the way until pretty much recently. Uh, she herself and her point of departure, you know, this whole esoteric Hitlerism, sedgeways into this left-hand path Satanism of, of Groups like the Order of the Nine Angles, because they emerge initially as a, a kind of an esoteric national socialist group in Britain, um, and then kind of morph into all kinds of things, and, and they uh, create decentralized kind of cells everywhere uh, throughout the West. Um, and the danger of this particular group is, is, in one thing it believes, that it wants to create what it calls an imperium, uh, an imperium that even transcends the planet Earth. And this would be a kind of a, a white nationalist dystopia that would then basically eradicate all brown and, and uh, non-white peoples from the planet and then go out and, and conquer the space, as it were. I wonder if that has anything to do with um, Robert Charu, um, because Robert Charu is a guy who, I want to say he is a guy that's responsible for like the Nordic white hair or blonde hair, blue eye aliens kind yeah. of thing. and. Uh, did a lot of the did a lot of science fiction writing around Hyperborea. Yeah, and um, you know, I mean, it's it's what a choice of a word, uh, an Imperium. Yeah. you know, um, wow, holy shit. Um, There's a lot of people that are yeah. attracted to this stuff. You would be surprised. I mean, and in some very unlikely places too. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I, it, it's just also unsettling, and I, and I think I've said this before, but like. You know, what's so unsettling about all this stuff to me is that it's it's on just so many levels. It's so offensive. Like, if you're a thoughtful person that values ideas and philosophy and a history of ideas, well, then it, it, Dugan takes all of that information and turns it on yes. itself, you know? Yeah. Um, if you're a person that is, um, is pro-democracy and pro-human uh, rights and pro-egalitarian, uh, stuff, you know, then, then he, then he turns the universality of human rights and the tradition of liberalism on itself as yeah. well. Um, you know, and if you're a person of faith, then he, then he totally bastardizes like the entire concept of having faith and being dedicated yes. to like truth, goodness, yeah. and beauty in the yeah. world. Um, so it's, it's all this stuff, a sort of, um, I, I mean, I, I feel like, you know, Ukraine and what's happening to come back to current events, it's like the beginning of his political program in so many ways. But you know what? Um, For all of that, you know, I we, we really have to be fair here. Um, like I mentioned, if, you know, if Dugan didn't exist or even if Putin didn't exist, they'd have to be created. Um, this situation sure. that, that the world now finds itself with Ukraine, which is an extremely dangerous situation that can, that is you know, that could lead us to nuclear war if we're not careful, could have been avoided. And it could have been avoided 
Um, during the last year of the Soviet Union, it could have been avoided by, by consecutive American administrations uh, if they had honored the undertakings that they had made with Mikhail Gorbachev, um, if NATO had not been pushed to the borders of Russia. And, you know, more than that, if Ukraine had not been turned into this massive American military base, as it has over the last decade, um, with, you know, American uh, advisors and whatnot in, in NATO and Western European, we wouldn't be here right now. You know, I, I am no um, apologist for the Russian kleptocracy and, and its its criminal oligarchic regime. But, you know, um, the policymakers and, and strategists of the West, in my opinion, from what I've seen, are not very smart people. They either willingly or unwittingly are creating these situations that lead to these you know, to what we're seeing today in Ukraine. And the people, the innocent people on the ground are then caught in the crossfire between these forces, you know, um, that they don't need to be, you know. Um, and also the Russian people themselves who are not happy uh, about, you know, their, themselves being dragged into a war with, with their Ukrainian cousins. I mean, this is completely unnecessary. Um, a lot of these people up until the you know 1990s were comrades under the Soviet state. You know, many of them served in the military with each other. I have friends in Ukraine. I have friends in Russia. And their parents and their families, you know, were, you know, tight. Um, and so what you're seeing with this, and this is why, you know, Putin doesn't make any sense to me in, in what he's doing is because he's basically doing the same sort of thing that happened in the Balkans in the 90s, when the Yugoslav state imploded suddenly, and you had these ethnic tensions and divisions and hatred that just suddenly came to the boil that hadn't existed for over 50 years, you know, under that Yugoslav mm. state, socialist state. Um, and so the question that everyone needs to ask them is Kibono, you know, who benefits from the state of affairs? And the answer is always obvious. It is capital that benefits from this, whether it is the arms dealers and manufacturers on the Russian side or the, you know, the, the NATO and the American and the Western European side, because, you know, this racket that is war is their, you know, their piggy bank. It is their cash cow. And, um, you know, the other day I was talking to a gentleman on the street and he kind of, you know, basically threw you know, this ethnic, he said that he looks at what's happening in Ukraine as kind of a, uh, an attempt by industry to make up for the shortfalls that they lost during the COVID pandemic. Um, because it comes oh. up, you know, right at the tail end. So then so much money was lost and, and whatnot. You know, this is the perfect opportunity for them to now make money from another angle. And he's right to some degree because and there is evidence to that end. But, you know, it is also dangerous. Many innocent people are getting killed. Potentially, they could be nuclear war that would lay this planet to waste, or at least large sections of it, um, poison the atmosphere, poison the oceans, etc. Um, we don't need to be here. And we don't need to be here. And we shouldn't be here. Had there been a third force in this planet that would adequately confront both of these fascists and Atlanticists simultaneously, we wouldn't be here right now at all. Well, I think that's a, I think that's a great place to, uh, to end this show, man, um, do you want to tell people where we can find you online? And and by the way, if, just thank you so much for for everything that you've told, for sounding the alarm on this, for um, for having to travel to Australia to relocate, and you know, in, in the memory of your wife as well. Thank like, you. I'm just, thank you. My heart goes out to you, and and, I, and you know, we had said on the phone uh, at one point. Uh, when we spoke that you know we have to stick together because um this stuff is I, i'm trying to sound the alarm on it you're trying to sound the alarm on it and and i think we, this needs to be spoken about and people need to be made aware of it so um 
for whatever risk they may, they may entail in doing so. Um, I, I appreciate I make, you having at least. Can I make one last yeah, one last point? Yeah. You know, I mean, people. Of course, can, yeah. People can take it or leave it. Um, the Ukrainian war between Russia and Ukraine and the West is really a war of oligarchs, and so the West, the Western left, has to be extremely adept not to back one oligarch against another. You know, we should advocate for people on the ground, people who are being brutalized on all sides, whether they're Russians or um, Ukrainians, whether they're Russian soldiers or proletariat. Uh, we should be advocating for them because these people don't need to be in that theater and not for, for, for plutocrats and oligarchs and their agendas, whether they're Western or Eastern. This is where we need to be. Um, because if, if a sizable voice comes into being that, that is very clear and advocates for something like that, then um, all sides will notice, as it were. And maybe we can do something for these people. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, I feel the same way. It's like uh, the, the, the most cogent, position to take out of all of this is to be anti-NATO, but not be completely blind yeah. to uh, Russia's military incursion. And I um, I don't know if it's like a default sort of inherited Cold Cold War positioning yeah. that we all, yeah. uh, that not, not all of us, but like, you know, I'm certainly not. I'm like, shit, dude, I, I understand Russia's capitalist, and uh, I'm not going to take the side of a capitalist in any war that's harming civilians on the ground. Um, and I, I just think that like, you know, sometimes you just have to lead with your first principles and trust in those. Exactly. Um, and uh, and you know, and and I know that we're we're Marxists, we're not moralists, but I mean, there is a, a moral truth to this situation sure. that um, that really is uh, it is like a guiding north star. Um, so yeah, as so I, I I do appreciate you even saying that because uh, unfortunately we're not I'm not I'm not hearing a whole lot of that out there, man. And more um, people need to speak that way, you know, and maybe we will stop this war, you know, if, if more people kind of understand the greater dynamics and not jump on bandwagons, you know, right? or create right. a new one, as it were, create a new bandwagon altogether rather than this one or the other one. Well, that's going to do it for this episode of No Easy Answers. As always, thank you for the support. Thank you for listening. And thanks for sharing these episodes on your social media. You know, right now we have lots of cool bonus content on this topic available on our Patreon. So for like $3 a month, you can unlock all of that right now at patreon.com forward slash no easy answers. Be sure to check out the show notes for links to Wahid's article, as well as Wahid's blog, Twitter, and YouTube channel. And we do have more content on this uh, topic forthcoming, so keep an eye out for that. All right, so I'm going to get out of here. Uh, take care, all my guys, gals, and non-binary pals. See ya.